This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Fran Kelly and the host of Only One Thing, RN Breakfast. Joining the party today with us is Insiders host David Spears. We're going to discuss the ins and outs of Labor's IR policy. <laughs> That's always fun, PK. Actually, you're the host of this podcast too. So just to fact check you, you well, that's are true. not the host of one thing. Um, yeah, look, I think um, we will be having a really thorough conversation with David Spears, who's our guest. But first, let's talk about the other big issue this week. Making waves this week has been the coalition split over climate policy, you might think. Is this a podcast from 10 years ago? No, it's a new <laughs> podcast. Uh, the Nationals are on the warpath um, from their leader, Michael McCormack, down. They've been intent on really challenging the Prime Minister's said goal that we talked about in last week's um, podcast of trying to reach net zero emissions by 2050, not a commitment, but an intention to get there. Uh, they've called for some sectors like agriculture, mining and manufacturing to be protected, but there are others who say, you know, even with carve-outs, it's not good enough. Like, for instance, Nationals MP Matt Canavan, who was a minister now on the backbench and isn't afraid to say what he really thinks. Well, I'm opposed to it. I mean, I can't stop a government signing a, a piece of paper, uh, but as a senator for Queensland, I'll uh, make sure that all my votes in the parliament represent... Uh, their interests. Uh, that's so you'd cross the floor on this? Uh, well, uh, absolutely I would if, if that was the, in the best interest of Queensland. Okay, so what seemed like always a difficult issue for the Prime Minister got more difficult, or did it, Fran? Well, did it? I mean, look, this is a, uh, a phantom debate, as many have pointed out by now, in the sense that, as you say, Scott Morrison has come up with his intention to get to net zero by 2050. It's a long way from a commitment. It's not a commitment yet, and we'll talk a bit later about the international pressure on Australia to make that commitment. It's also unlikely to go to legislation anyway, so it's unlikely anyone will be crossing the floor. And it's also, I think this is important, PK, not necessarily what many who would deem themselves constituents of the Nats really want. I mean, there's plenty of evidence of farmers and farm groups calling for more leadership on climate action, and some are already doing it. The NNF, NFF, for instance, the National Farmers Federation, it already has a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. It says it still wants to see the plan and wants to make sure agriculture is not worse off, but it's happy to commit to that pledge. The red meat industry is way ahead of it. It's already, and this is some time ago now, committed to a goal of net zero emissions in that sector by 2030, the pork industry, and we've spoken to a number of farmers on breakfast who say what is needed here is leadership and certainty because farmers are already getting on with it. They can see it's writ large in their paddocks, the impact of climate change. They're trying to get their hands on as much data and as much science and research and development as they can to lower the emissions on farm. And they want the government to come up with a system that will actually have inducements and incentives for farmers 
farmers to do more so that farmers who are doing the right thing, making their properties more sustainable, working on lowering emissions, actually can see a dollar benefit for that through some kind of carbon credit scheme. Now, the Prime Minister has hinted at that, soil carbons, but the the farmers haven't seen the detail of that yet. But they want to be counted in, not out. That's my sense. I think that's right. But what's really um, interesting is that, you know, the Prime Minister looked, I think, from last week like perhaps he had the capacity to deliver something here, right? That, you know, he was clearly walking very slowly in this direction and there's been criticism of that, but he was moving in this direction. And then this week there's been really what is a breakout um, the, the usual voices, not to say that, you know, there's been, there's new voices or that, that it's it's grown in its strength, but just a reminder that this is going to be a really hard one to land for him. And we know that, you know, as you said, a phantom debate, what, what's there to vote on anyway? There's no mechanism. Uh, there's no, there's nothing before the parliament. The prime minister's not actually providing any kind of architecture for the Nats to arc up about, but they're signalling that they're not going to to take this easily. And even Michael McCormack's concession, right, to, to his base, to his party room, agriculture gets carved out, as as happens in New Zealand. That's not good enough for a lot of them, right? I mean, you get Matt Canavan coming out saying, that's no, not, it's not good enough. So it, it, it reveals the fault lines within the nationals as well. And the fact that this is ultimately not just a debate about climate change inside of the nationals. This is a big, this is a proxy debate also for the leadership of the nationals, is it not, Fran? This is them saying to Michael McCormack, you better go hard. If you don't, your time's up. It is a proxy debate and the language is over the top. I mean, Matt Canavan said something, I'm not sure it was with that interview you did about, you know, this kind of um, target would destroy regional Australia. He described it as a, a mythical target. You know, he's doing his best to make people frightened of this target. And one farmer I spoke with, one young woman I spoke with this week, she said, you know, that that is terrible. Already, many people on farms are suffering the impacts of climate change. They're suffering the impacts of years of drought. Their mental health is already fragile. They don't need to be frightened, have the sort of a Jesus frightened out of them by Matt Canavan saying this target will destroy regional Australia when there's plenty of evidence that it will not. And not only that, PK, it's not really useful because Australia is going to have to do more. We know that because the international pressure is building. I mean, Scott Morrison is going to be coming under pressure very, very soon by the United States, by the, the United Kingdom and by Europe because our exports could be under threat of some kind of carbon levy. We have Joe Biden, who's planning a leaders' climate action meeting in April, and he's declaring he will impose, quote, carbon adjustment fees or quotas on carbon-intensive goods from countries that are failing to meet their climate environmental obligations. And Boris Johnson has signalled he wants to use the G7 summit meeting, which is coming up in June, to establish some kind of climate tariff regime on imports. He says this is his passion project, apparently. So Australia is going to have to move. There will be a debate about what's the definition of failing to meet your climate obligations. But I would imagine something very close to a pledge of net zero by 2050 is going to be one of the bottom lines of, of that pledge to satisfy the likes of the UK and the US. Oh, absolutely. And that's clearly on the cards. How the PM manages the internal fire is, I think, going to be uh, the biggest challenge for him. And it doesn't look like it's got any easier. I had a, had a brief sense that perhaps maybe... 
not that the war was over, because clearly um, there's some of these people, Matt Canavan being clearly one of them, but there are others, Bridget McKenzie, who weren't going to, you know, just take this laying down. But I did get the sense that perhaps, you know, there was some way that the PM could negotiate on this, but I think it's going to be really difficult for him. Let's see if he can stamp his authority, though, on, on the party room and say, hey, guys, you know, this is where the world's going. Yeah, and look, I think we continue to do this discussion with David Spears when he joins us, but I guess that might come down to the dollar. I mean, the PM's already signalled this soil carbon plan. If he can have enough inducements or um, incentives for the farm community or the mining community uh, to offset some pain that will come with the net zero emissions pledge, you know, maybe that's what will do it. But as you say, there's a lot of internal politics and ambition wrapped up here. That's certainly right. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. (laughs) David Spears, the host of Insiders and a friend of this podcast. Welcome to the party room. Great to be here, PK and Fran. Uh, David, lovely to have you. Just to finish up on this sort of climate policy fracas Mm. led by the Nats, uh, PK and I have been talking about it. How much of this is the Nats signalling to their base, particularly in the mining communities? How much is about it? sort of political ambitions, clashes in, in the Nats itself. And how's Scott Morrison going to quieten this down? Look, I think it's, it's a bit of uh, two of those things you talk about all boiling around in the mix and a lot of steam being generated in the National Party. Yes, playing to their base in some Queensland seats. Yes, uh, leadership tensions at play in this. Yes, wanting to differentiate and push back at the libs uh, within the coalition. All of this creating a lot of uh, steam, as I say, about something that's actually not Yet, a government <laughs> policy. No, there's no mechanism, <laughs> nothing to vote there's on. There's no target yet either for 2050. We all expect they'll get there. And I think that that's where the Prime Minister does want to get to. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of noise at the moment when they haven't even uh, got there yet. Look, they, they want to carve out for agriculture to diff- differing degrees. You know, they're taking harder lines. You know, if, if you're Matt Canavan, you're threatening to cross the floor. If you're, you're Bridget McKenzie, you're not quite there. But at the end, I don't think it, it will be something that goes to a vote. Michael McCormack has said that as well. This won't be something they legislate. Mm. And we can have a debate about whether that's mm. really a target if it's not legislated. But anyway, I don't think the government is going to want to test numbers on the floor one way or another or give an opportunity for people to cross the floor. So look, ultimately, this politically, Yes, is dangerous ground once again for Michael McCormack. He forever seems to be on that uh, very, very thin ice, doesn't he? He does. And my listeners listening to Bridget McKenzie this week were really apoplectic about the fact she kept saying, you know, we want to see the plan. And they're saying, you were a minister, you're in this government. Michael McCormack is the deputy leader. Shouldn't you be coming up with the plan? Like, what is this? We want Mm. to see the plan. Yeah, and this is what is happening right now. Um, Government departments are working on that plan. Scott Morrison needs a plan. He knows that. He's made that very clear from the get-go that he won't commit to something without a plan. So that's exactly what's happening right now. It'll be fascinating to see whether that does give us a trajectory, what that trajectory looks like to 2050, uh, what industries are covered and aren't covered, uh, what opportunities are there for uh, for the National Party constituency as well through you know uh, soil carbon incentives and so on. So you know, all of this is being worked on right now. That's the process the government's engaged in. So thumping the table, demanding to see the plan, well, you know, it's a little pointless right now. Oh, completely pointless, but it just shows just how vexed this issue con- continues to be. Mm. Let's change the topic to another, well, should I call it vexed? I'm not sure how vexed, but certainly um, it will be at the, at the centre of the election campaign. On Wednesday, 
We heard Labor leader Anthony Albanese announce Labor's industrial relations policy or framework. There will be more detail. Uh, Labor's secure Australian jobs plan. Here he is. For millions of Australians, the essential prerequisite to raising a family, buying a home and building a future is a good, secure job and enough super to retire comfortably. Not being forced into a casual job, but good permanent work that comes with protections such as sick leave, family leave, annual leave and penalty rates. Scott Morrison doesn't get this, but I do. Anthony Albanese has said he wants the coming election to be fought on differing visions for Australia. The Labor movement is very much trying to make jobs, industrial relations policy, the centrepiece of the campaign. They want it fought on that territory and they've, you know, announced some changes or that they would like to introduce hmm. permanency for contractors or, or you know, uh, also the gig economy workers, portability of entitlements, David. And this does seem to be something that uh, is going to be very much fought over, given the government's reaction. Is a bit to unpack here. So Anthony Albanese, <laughs> we know, has been under a fair bit of pressure internally to come up with policy. What's the difference between the government and Labor? What's our reason? This has been the internal pressure on Albanese. Where's the policy for us to fight for and get behind? So fair enough. Uh, this is this is you know, bread and butter, IR for Labor. Some of this is uh, simply taken from the Bill Shorten Labor policy before the last election, things like same job, same pay, cracking yep. down on cowboy labour hire companies. That's, you know, same job, same pay was the same line Shorten used. Um, things like getting rid of the building industry watchdog and the Registered Organisations Commission, exactly what Labor took to the last election. But the new elements, and you touch on them there, uh, the gig economy workers and the portability of entitlements. These are the two key areas I'd like to just, just look at here because... Mm. They are contentious. Um, now, there's there's no doubt Labor for a long time has been talking about the need for better wages, you know, better pay, better conditions, vulnerable workers. And we've seen through the pandemic, you know, they have been the hardest hit. They didn't have sick leave. They had to turn up for work and the danger that caused all of that. I think this is a really important area for Labor to focus on. But what he's suggesting still has a lot of detail to come. It's kind of the vibe at the moment. We want to give you a better deal. But technically what their position is, we will empower the Fair Work Commission mm. to look at uh, employee-like forms of work and establish mm. minimum standards for gig economy workers. So it, 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 trusting the, the Fair Work Commission, the independent umpire, yep. to look after these gig economy workers, yeah, they don't give them the tools to do that. Bear in mind, remember the whole penalty rate debate? Labor decided the Fair Work Commission got it wrong in their decision on penalty rates. Labor yeah. believed they did, you know, they, they needed to make a call as, 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 as a government if they won the election on that. But here they're trusting the, the, the umpire to get it right for gig economy workers. On the portability of entitlements, technically there the position is to consult when in government on extending... Um, yeah, there are some portability areas at the moment for construction workers, yep. coal miners on, on long service leave. Builders, you know, if they work in the industry, they'll work for a bunch of different firms, but they can take with them um, their long service leave. That's right. And the, building, done with, the builders actually That's right. The builders, the, the unions work together. They, they park it in a fund and that's how it works. So, yeah. look, they are looking at where you could extend that. That may make some sense, but the way they've said it at the moment is so broad. Uh, the, the, the position in the documents they've released are annual leave, sick leave, long service leave for those in insecure work being portable. I mean, that could be very wide, and that's yeah. why Port has gone to the extreme end and said, it'll cost the economy $20 billion. Well, it won't, but we don't know, and Labor can't say what it will cost. That's right. So, you know, Christian Porter comes out and 
goes bananas, right? Like yeah. twenty billion dollars, like <laughs> well, you know, it's sale of the century. It's a nice lot of money. Round number. Yeah, that's right. And and I then spoke with Tony Burke, who is the industrial relations spokesman. Put that number to him, which which you'd expect. He knew that was coming. Like he'd sure, seen. Sure, he watched the press conference. He yeah. watched the press conference, and um, you know, he's like, "That's not our policy." And and it's like, well, you do have a policy around portability of in- entitlements. So what would it cost? What where where's the detail? They cannot yet answer that question. You might say that's reasonable, yeah. right? Because it's about consulting. They don't have the policy. But it's inevitable that the question will be of asked. Of course the question's going to be asked. Look, sure, it's extreme to say $20 billion, right? But you think if there's one lesson Labor should have learned after the last election on climate change was, um, you know, yes, the government will run a scare campaign against you. Yes, you mm. need better answers to these questions uh, and a bit of detail. Now, fair enough. There are some things you can only do in government and consulting with industry and, and, and unions and so on, but be a bit more specific uh, about exactly what entitlements and which workers you're talking about in which industries. At the, the moment, the way it's worded, it, it does leave, I think, Labor open to this sort of scare campaign. I think it does. And I think Labor has actually walked directly into the scare campaign. And that runs the risk, as the climate policy did in the last election, of really undermining the overall message about fairness for workers and fairness for workers with insecure mm. work, which I think there's a lot of support this, for look, in the community. Absolutely but I just friend. feel like Labor yeah. has really miscalculated here and it could be quite dangerous. I think, them. you know, it's really hard to argue something doesn't need to be done uh, about these insecure workers. I mean, Albanese in his speech gave a really powerful example. He talked about Rosa, a delivery food uh, rider who was hit by a car door while she was working. She didn't have sick leave, so she had to get back to work. Mm. She couldn't ride as fast as she could, and she got the sack, he said. Uh, No recourse or legal protection. I mean, that's appalling, right? Something Mm. needs to change. In our country. I also think it's fair enough to at least be considering the notion, given that none of us are in jobs for life anymore, most of us anyway, and um, therefore some kind of capacity to move your entitlements with you Mm. is probably an idea we should be investigating more. Yeah, look, absolutely. But do we do that economy-wide? Is this a role mm. for government? Is this... I mean, there we're talking, you know, big structural change. Yeah. But at the moment, the way it's worded as a position at the moment, maybe we will get more detail from Labor before the election on this. Um, but the idea that, you know... Well, maybe and- they'll have to run a mile from it now because of this scare campaign. Yeah, and look, <laughs> right I don't think, now it's it's a little vague. I don't think they're going to run a mile from it, right? But I don't think they were prepared enough for the questions that were going to be raised around it, is my view. Let's go to the gig economy mm. element, which you just mentioned, Rosa, the stories, which I think are just heartbreaking. Yep. And we know... I think all Australians who are using these kind of services, Uber Eats, are having ethical discussions with the, in, in their families mm. about that. We yeah. all are, anyone mm. who is, right? So I, don't, I do think it's a reasonable point and, and exploring it is really important. But they're going to have to level with us. And I think we got a sense of that. Again, Tony Burke, I put to him, who's going to pay for it, right? You know, if, you, if you're paying gig economy workers more, is it the consumer? And he conceded uh, that it was consumers mm. who would ultimately have to pay more. Now, I think that's a good answer and you need to level with Absolute. the public. People appreciate that level of honesty. You're going to have to pay more. Here's why, to have a more fair system. I think people are up for that. 
Um, maybe I'm being a bit naive, and there are some people who always go for the cheaper option if they can. But if it's you know if it's there in legislation, and all these tech companies do have to do the right thing by their workers, uh, then sure, I think people are up for that. I mean, yeah, sure, we love the convenience, as Labor says, of these apps. Um, but does anyone really think it's fair that someone can deliver your food for five bucks mm. when they've got to provide the vehicle and their time and all that? Of course not. No, and ultimately, you know, when you level with people and say. You're going to have to pay more, but this is the reason. You can have a more honest discussion, but it still, of course, provides room for a scare campaign saying, oh, the cost of living is going to go up under Labor. You can hear it now, right? Uh, I think it'll be fascinating to see how they handle that. Look, just one more point, though. Mm. So we've talked about Labor's vulnerability. Let's not forget the vulnerability of the government on Mm -hmm. this issue. We have just had a pandemic that has, which is why Labor's gone into this territory, exposed insecure work or, you know, the second outbreak we had in Melbourne, that long lockdown was partly, not entirely, but partly based on the fact that, you know, hotel workers Mm. have second, third jobs. Now that's been stamped out because of insecure work. And the aged care sector, don't forget that. All those aged care workers. Absolutely, Fran. And so I think there is a sense that all of us, even those of us not in insecure work, are thinking, oh, this is a really big issue in our country. The government is vulnerable on this as well, are they not, David Spears? It's not as if they're clear on this. They can just run a Labor scare campaign and they're fine. Yeah, Yeah. I mean... It is a problem that's been exposed to many in this during this pandemic. Uh, and, yeah, what are the government's plans to do something about it? It's, it's pretty hard to see them. I think they're vulnerable on their own, IR Omnibus Bill as well, uh, which I think they're doing a, a pretty poor job of, of selling uh, at the moment. In the first That's week, not in it, is it? No. I mean, the Prime Minister barely touched it in his press club address to start the year. The first week of Parliament, Labor went after the, the Minister and the Prime Minister over this. And yeah, there was no argument put in favour of why they want to change the better off overall test. Uh, you know, there were limited efforts, I thought, of trying to defend other elements. Uh, so yes, they, they've, they've either got to you know, step up their, um, their arguments as to why they want to make these changes or drop them. Uh, and it, look, they'll have to put it to a vote in Parliament in March. But after that, you know, if they can scrape through bits of it, they will. And then I'm sure they'll, they'll leave it. And PK, the point you raised there about during the pandemic, we saw the impact of people having sort of casual job to casual job and needing to buckle them together to make some kind of portfolio to make ends meet. Yeah, we could all see it, but there's a lot of people living that. And so that's who Labor's talking to, too, that all those people who are in that situation, this is their lives. And that's a lot of young people in particular. And maybe this, to a degree, is enough to resonate with them from Labor. Um, you know, the, the detail is what we're talking about here, and, and this is where Labor's going to face some challenge. But maybe the themes they're talking about are enough uh, to, uh, you know, really hit hit the nail with uh, those families and you know, parents whose, whose kids are in some of these vulnerable jobs as well, that Labor cares, that Albanese cares. I, I think that's a big part of what he's trying to do here. Now, David Spears, we're going to change topic to something that I think will be very much dominating uh, over the weekend too. The coronavirus outbreak from Melbourne's holiday mm. in quarantine hotel has grown in recent days, prompting a view that perhaps the whole hotel quarantine program is is pretty vulnerable again. Lots of concerns around this. Um, South Australia is closing its border to residents of Greater Melbourne, so the border wars begin, or the, or the border changes. But really, we are now in the next phase of looking at hotel quarantine and thinking, how well is this working out for us all? We still don't have national standards. We still, I feel, don't have a sense that there is going to be 
the federal government intervening enough in this area? Yes, look, a a few things. It's interesting that South Australia, as we record this, is the only state to have slapped a border closure on um, Greater Melbourne anyway. Uh, But we haven't heard the Commonwealth condemning the um, the actions of the Liberal um, South Australian government. Uh, Look, let's see what other states do. It also has a flow on impact for those trying to get back to Australia as well, because Melbourne's, Victoria is not going to go ahead with the increase in uh, its um, cap on arrivals that was going to happen next week. Um, Look, I think with the question around hotel quarantine, uh, yes, arguably it would be good for the government, federal government, to play a greater role. And, you know, it it would argue it's it's done its bit with Howard Springs and is ramping that up, wants to double the capacity there. But I don't think that is nearly enough. Um, I I think, you know, the site that's being looked at at Toowoomba uh, could be an interesting option. But, you know, clearly... You know, the Commonwealth, as Labor says, does have quarantine responsibility. Yes, they did a deal at the start of this with the states for them to run the hotel quarantine. It has been a really successful part of our defence against COVID, but the federal government um, you know, should be playing a greater role uh, in all of this. I think you know, the arguments around shifting, shutting down city hotel quarantine, moving it all to the bush is somewhat flawed, uh, impractical. I think, you know, we are in a foot race against this virus um, in the new strains and how they are transmitting and things like, you know, the nebulizer that's apparently created the problem at the uh, Holiday Inn. They need to, you know, constantly update their rules yeah. and fix these issues, get the workers better equipment. All of it's, it's just, as I say, a bit of a foot race keeping up with the problems that this pandemic keeps throwing up. And that's the that's the point. I think you're right. Foot race is a great description for it because the the new strains are coming in. Clearly, there's these outbreaks now because the they are more potent. And if we can have doors opening in hotel cor- yeah. corridors and people getting infected by up to half an hour later, that's a different order of problem. Doesn't that mean? And I think this does come down to federal leadership. It might be the states implementing this, but we need federal leadership, health leadership, and science leadership, the epidemiologists too. telling the government, okay, this is not going to work so well now in certain hotels. If we're going to use hotel quarantine, it's going to have to be a different kind of hotel or we're going to have to check the the capacity of their, you know, air quality controls within those places. We're going to have to nuance this, it seems to me, because it just seems much more potent. And we are really um, leading the world with this stuff in terms of the hotel quarantine system. I'm not sure if other countries have, have done it quite the way and quite as well as we have. And we've got to remember that. And you know, by and large, yes, there have been these cases that have leaked out and they're always a concern and they can lead to bigger community um, outbreaks. But the system's done well, the states have done well, and they do seem to be doing really well at jumping on cases <clears throat> when they do leak out of hotel quarantine. And you know, I think we've got to remember that. This has been a really good example of how Australia is tackling this, this pandemic. Let's hope there is some sort of national standards, though. I do I do think it's the fact that we have such different approaches across the states and territories is still a ma- massive hole in the way that we're managing this. This is now over, you know, a year into the pandemic. Mm. Do you mean about the the way, you know, what staff have to wear, what all of it, the protocols all of that. are? All I of that. I think that's changing, and yeah. some somewhere someone needs to take leadership on that. Now, perhaps that's happening at the level of the health expert committee. I hope it is, um, because that's clearly changing mm. as the potency of these new strains changes. And also, the other concern that's worried me is what is it? One or two cases that have got it after finishing their two weeks yes. of yes. quarantine. Yes, day sixty. Yeah, and you think. 
Ooh, well, we appear to be guessing. We appear to be saying, well, they must have caught it in quarantine, but we don't kind of know. So that's yeah. what I mean. There are there are sort of some strange things happening. Now, in that foot race, it's it's a matter of probably doing some catching up. Mm. I just feel there needs to be um, a, a federal leadership stamp put on this that I'm not seeing enough of at the moment. No, that's right. Hey, David, before I let you go, just want to pick your brain very briefly. Mm. Next week, Parliament sits. Anything exciting going to happen? I reckon IR will be happening again uh, next week, and I think you can see the government just relishing the chance to um, go after what Labor's done here with their IR plan. I, I expect that'll focus, but uh, you know, Wayala wipeout. It'll be Wayala wipeout all over again. <laughs> Who's going to sing the song? Uh, but we never go through a week of Parliament without some sort of climate change um, uh, blow up, uh, do we? Within the coalition, so you can you can see where this is going. We talked about the pressure on McCormack. The pressure is on. Morrison as well here. He has taken over from Malcolm Turnbull. We know how we all know how that story ended. Uh, and Morrison, as a canny operator, will be keeping a very close eye managing this um, this very issue. David, as always, an excellent guest. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, guys. See you, David. Now, before we go, we love getting your questions about politics and how the parliament functions. Parliament's back next week, so question time will be back for the parliament, so it should be back for us too. It seems reasonable to align the weeks together. So send us your questions, anything you're dying to know. Yeah, and, and I'm sure there are. I know there are things you're dying to know. Try us. Tweet us using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. That's it for the party room this week. Yep, we'll be back next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.